and giving our affections to lesser glory, both those that are involved in confusing our idolatry. Religion can't be personal and just internal. Uh, this is just a, an observation. <clears throat> if the Lord at times has sent prophets to warn of coming judgment, then it makes it very clear that anyone who says, uh, keep religion to yourself has no idea that it's a, they're, they're rejecting God's word. Lord feels like he has the right to send prophets to relay his message to people. And uh, it is up to us to submit to that and not to tell people that I don't want to hear the word of the Lord. That's all people do when they want me to internalize their religion. The Lord always provides for his people when they obey him. We saw that uh, Elijah was fed away from the world of
they, they, that's why they're gonna, they don't have any attention to moving because their, their kids are there, their grandkids are there, and I understand that. But be careful about telling God what you will and will not do, and when you tell people, other people that you're gonna die in the location, you are telling God that that's, that's what I want, this is what I plan, I don't plan on moving, what, what if God wants you to move? Perhaps there were Japanese Christians in, uh, when that, Tsunami took place, and, and remember the uh, nuclear power plant uh, leaked, and, and they had everybody had to flee the area. Perhaps in Chernobyl, same situation. Perhaps there were Japanese Christians who planned on dying in that location. You know, Chernobyl happened what '86, something like that, going on 50 years now, and uh, the, the, the people that live there are not living there anymore, right? That, and they didn't die where they thought they were going to die. So. Uh, the Lord, uh, He's doing what He's doing, and, and our a godly person is, is ready. Lord, help me to to deal with whatever you throw my way, and and help me to be able to let go of your children. You know, people are so wrapped up in their children. I'm like, I understand that. Obviously, in a grandchild, what if God calls them to another land and you never see them again? You know, and I and I again, I know my parents who will do their best to talk the child out of that because they don't want their child to go for themselves in nature or maybe never see them again. We understand it. But uh, what do you what do you think life is about? Life's not about you. Uh, having all you know, living and dying, having all your hands around you all the time. If it worked out that way, great. That's not what life is. It's not the main point of life. So God uh not creative here with uh, Elijah, and that's uh, the way it goes. And, and, and no Christian, no church is ever stronger than when they are able to weather the uh, trials and tribulations that God might send our way. And I've seen that firsthand. And so, also, another thing about this passage is that in the New Testament, Elijah going to the Gentile widow, Jesus uses as an indication that, uh, that Israel needs to understand that they're not, uh, all that. That they're, they're sinners, uh, and no more deserving of salvation than the rest of the world. And, and Jesus actually uses this example to teach that. Look over at Luke chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 22, <clears throat> read down to verse 30. He says, and, and all spoke well of him. This is Jesus, of course. He's in Nazareth, his hometown. And uh, all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that had been coming from his mouth. And they said to him, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal thyself. What have, what we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. In other words, the idea of physician heal yourself, in other words, physician heal your family or heal your hometown first. We've heard you doing all these things. Uh, you owe it to us. We're your hometown. Why haven't you done it here? In verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for eight years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. 
and Elijah was sent to Judah, but only to a Zarephath in the land of Sidon, Sidon, who woman was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of the prophet Elijah, which we're getting to about uh, two, much, you know, pretty soon. And none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, so really from the same area. <clears throat> and when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff for passing through the midst of the way. So, uh, interesting. Jesus, uh, says, wait just a minute. You, you think you deserve this. You don't. And, uh, here's the proof of that. <clears throat> Someone said that Elijah was being sent to Baalsville and Gentile. In a sense, that's certainly true. And they were, they were sinful and, and they didn't deserve any more than the Jews and the Jews didn't deserve anything any more than uh, the Gentiles. So that, God told them that over and over again in their, uh, history. And so in a sense, his actions, Elijah's actions were a prophecy of Israel's eventual rejection and certainly the inclusion of Gentiles into God's redemptive plan. Israel was getting the object lesson to let them know that God saves other people. It's not just for the same Jews. So Jesus uses this account to show that by Israel's later rejection of him, the gospel will be sent abroad. So all this is, in a a sense, an act of judgment on Israel. And the town spoke of, of Nazareth for quick to say what Jesus is saying. They didn't like it. How dare you equate us with Gentiles? And they're going to kill him for that. That's just how ingrained this was. Une- completely unacceptable that they were as undeserving as a Gentile. <clears throat> so in this account, and again, the point there is not just the Jewish situation back then, but this is something that we need to remember, that, that we look at any other group of people, that maybe your neighbor or whatever, and you see them, and what aren't they? They're some pretty rotten people. Well, maybe they are, but, but they're no more, you're no more deserving of grace, right? They are. And God can save all types of people, and does save all types. So in this account, Elijah and the widow then, we see the sovereign movement of the Holy Spirit to take his word wherever he will. And uh, God doesn't work haphazardly. And you think about her God was Baal, uh, and uh, Baal was failing her. And so just like with the uh, Israelites in Egypt, God does something to show that her God cannot help her, that She's already kind of realized that. She's dying. She's about to make her last meal. She's, she's planning on starving to death. Her God had failed her. And Yahweh comes along and says, Oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, give you this uh, never-ending jar of food and oil right, until it rains. And so in verses 9 and uh, 10, you can imagine when Elijah hears that someone who is dying of hunger is going to take, he says, go, and this widow is dying of hunger, and she's going to take care of you. You see the faith of Elijah, you see the kind of faith we should have, and God says, I want to give what you do, and humanly speaking, that makes no sense, but, hey, you know, that's not ours to question why. 
Elijah goes to her. Elijah assumes that God's word is true. And, and so, say, you know, you want to know God's will for your life. Okay. Do what God tells you to do. And, you, and it makes no sense to you. Well, that's irrelevant. Just be, obey God's word today and you will be in his will. Um, and so, you know, Elijah's faith doesn't see so much a widow. He sees the God who can do all things. And it can be contrasted to some degree with the disciples' faith uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000. When they said, what is this little lunch among so many? And in a, in a sense, Elijah saying, what is God among so many? That's what the, that's what the disciples should have been saying. That 5,000, 5 million, you know, God created all this. What, is, what, is, what God is among so many? <clears throat> So we notice here in verse 12 that something else that illustrates the gospel call, she is forced to confess that she is ruined. She, she's, she's come to the end of herself, which is always where someone has to come if they're going to receive Christ, the Lord and Savior. That's what repentance is. It is recognizing that you are undone, that you have nothing to offer God, that all your works are filthy rags, uh, and, and so you repent of all your righteousness, of all your supposed righteousness, and you trust in Christ alone, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so much, you know, you have to say, well, you've got to confess all your sins. You know, well, that would take forever, because, you know, there's so many sins. Commit it all. No, it's, it's turning your back on, on, on those things that you trusted in. So she recognizes that she's got nothing left. God, Yahweh. And so Jesus says, cast all your care upon me, and I will take care of you. You know, if you're looking, if you come to Christ because you want a partnership, like, well, Lord, I need your help now and then, but that's not coming to Christ. It's not repentance. And so it's a wonderful example of faith because it risks all at the word of God uh, because it is the word of God. If faith believes that God cannot lie, and has the power to do what he says he will. God tells us to give him everything that we had, and we notice that he promises here to give us everything that we need. You, you, because that woman, you give me all that you have, and by the way, God will now take care of you and give you all that you need, not all you want. She's still poor, but she was taken care of. So we give our substance to the Lord because we know that he will sustain us. Nothing shows a lack of faith in being unwilling to uh, generously give uh, to the Lord you know, when the plague is passed. That, that's, a, that's a way that we worship God. It's, it's not just something we have to do because, well, the pastor's got to get paid or the church needs some money to function. I mean, that's true, but it's a way that we say, Lord, uh, I can give you everything. I can give you everything. And I know you'll take care. Now, the church, you're not going to give everything to the church. That's not what we're talking about. But I can if I need to. Like he told that rich young ruler, sell all that you have. You see, it would make financial sense. Well, no, and, and as a rule, the Lord doesn't tell us to sell everything we have. He doesn't tell us to give everything. We'll see in, in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. As the Lord blesses you, you give on the first day of the week. Uh, so, but, what about when the Lord says, you know, in this case, I'm going to 
take everything. I want everything. You know how you can mess you burn. I know a guy who uh in the uh, Hawaii who in the fire lost lost everything. And uh then he had a camera, he was a photographer, he had one camera. That's pretty much it. The Lord, you know, and, and so, you know, if you're a Christian, sometimes the Lord says, you know, you are going to demonstrate to this world what it is to follow Christ in a way that, that, that not everybody does. And that's, so it's really a great privilege. It's a great opportunity. It's not one that we necessarily think of it like that. But when we can stop and, 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 and Live by faith and not by sight and be spiritual. And, and that's what being spiritual is. It is to, to meditate on the word of God and conform to it. When, when something disaster happens, this is an opportunity. And it hurts. I don't like it. But it's an opportunity and I will shine forth as gold to this world by the Lord's help, right? And that takes great faith. But, but that's what we have to do. And, and, and I think we see this with Elijah, and we've seen it with a lot of the, the biblical characters. And we've seen it with certainly with a lot of people in the church over the years. You, you see people are able to do that. And so we, we, we don't be taken off guard. That's why we say this, you know, I don't know if it'll happen to any of us, but if it, and when it does, you can't be taken off guard because you know that. We all know that. We, we know the word of God. We know this happens to people, right? <clears throat> so salvation is being saved from the wrath of God, and that's exactly what she has been given here. In this case, if she uh, she was going to starve to death. She leaves home with no hope. She's preoccupied with living for the day and dying tomorrow. And she comes home with the promise of life and being able to occupy, being occupied with serving others. But her, her life is completely changed. So as we said in verse 17, we have the third miracle, which is uh, to raise her son from the dead. And, you know, if you listen to the health and wealth gospel of people, which is, which is no gospel, of course, but here the Lord has saved her, has given, given her all that she needs. You think, well, uh, she's a child of the king and things are looking up. And then, not, in just a few, uh, not too long after that, her child dies. So it looks like um, Christians can expect beds of ease, right? The psalm says. Um, so far we've seen this pattern of Elijah, now this widow, the, the Lord's word comes and proclaims that he, he, he will have trials. Whether it's the river drying up, whether it's uh, going to a widow without food, down a dead child, living for the Lord's going to require some patience and faith. Because we don't know how things are going to turn out. Now it's interesting that you know some. If your theology is not strong, it's not biblical. You read this and you think, "I, God just saved her and her son. This great miracle to Elijah. There's no way he's going to turn around and kill her son." So this clearly was written later on. Somebody else wrote this, or this is another widow, and, we, and you know, it just isn't made obvious in the text. Uh, it's not the same widow, which really is nonsense. 
And because because it doesn't fit their theology, God doesn't give us the people He loves. Well, maybe your theology is a little bit stuck. Um, but, but, but you know, if we read this, you know. We've got to be able to, what do we do with a sudden turn of events? The Lord is blessing you one moment, and then all of a sudden, he's taking your child. Has God changed his mind? Is he unable to keep his word? He never promised her, of course, or any of us, that the child wasn't going to die and then all that. No, God saves people because he's going to enlist them in his service. Think about it. No, God doesn't save us so that we can have in this life, pamper, be pampered. Right. So, so get that out of your mind. The Bible doesn't teach it anywhere. Uh, you, you can't twist Old Testament covenant language to make it fit New, New Testament situation. God does not save us to pampers. Now, will we be pampered in glory in all eternity? Absolutely. It, it won't be any, it cannot be any better for us in, in glory than what it's going to be. And I can't even imagine what it's going to be like to be perfectly satisfied and happy, never bored, never disappointed. I can't even begin to understand. But I know it's coming. But not in this life. And so he saves us to enlist us into his service. And he's going to teach us about himself so that we can glorify him through faith and praise and worship. In this case, for whatever reasons, God has made, it will be through the death of her son. Now, as it turns out, it's temporary. But we know, again, this, these were odd times. We talked about last week, these, these were times of miracles. Just like the times of Moses and the times of Jesus and the apostles. Very, as, a, as the, the normal course of human history, if your child dies, he's not coming back. You think about this sad, sad situation in the Bethel Church a few years ago where they just, they start praying for this girl to be raised. And, you know, we don't live in those times. And that's not how God works. And uh, we don't need that, those things anymore as much as we would like them. And so we've got to get in our mind, why did God save me? What, what are the real purposes of, of, of my salvation? Why am I here? Who is God? You know, what, what does he desire? How is he glorified? These are the things that give meaning to life and help understanding. <clears throat> it's interesting down here in verse 24, at the end of the chapter, where after Elijah raises her child, now I know that you're a man of God, that God's word is true and all this kind of stuff. And, and so, how quickly she forgets about this marvelous miracle of, of having a not, a never empty jar of food during times of famine, we get used to it. We get used to having God's blessing so that we no longer really think that we think that we deserve it or it's just, that's, just, that's just the way things are and, and we need uh, more of something, something greater. So it's kind of interesting. She shows, you know, that's what sin is in, in us. We're never truly satisfied. We always want more. And again, that's why, because sin is, there's a void there with uh, God, not in our heart, as it should be. And that void will be filled, of course, someday, 
here we see this. She, she's grown unimpressed with daily bread and, and sunshine, air to breathe. You know, and, and some of you know, I, I, uh, my, my taste and smell sometimes just as well. You know, and over the last six, eight years or however long it's been, more times than not, I, I can't smell the taste anymore. Well, recently, over the last year, the doctors have figured out something to help me, and I'm feeling better right now. I got out of the car today and I go to church, opened the door, and I don't know how many of you noticed the smell that opened the door. I imagine probably none of you. Even not that you don't now and then, but you know. But I get out, I can smell flowers and, and sweet smells and Grass and trees and just the air just full of smells. I haven't smelled for it in some cases, but I can't remember last time I smelled something. Got now smell that, right? And, and but that's that's the way we are. We get used to stuff, and uh, it doesn't impress us as it should. And uh, so, so you know, but since I, I just thank the Lord, I said, no, it, I, I thank you that you reminded me, gave me an opportunity just to remember. What kind of a, a creation is what, what, the, what, what kind of fragrances that we get to enjoy in, in God's creation? And someday we'll be able to enjoy smell the hidden glory uh, in ways that we've never experienced here on earth, no doubt. I look forward to that. We'll be constant for one thing. So the problem here, though, is that God seems to have made it clear that he's going to take care of her and her son through the famine, and then her son dies anyway. So his providence seems to contradict and declare his purpose. She suspects that Elijah's coming now. Uh, after all, when her son dies, that Elijah's been sent by the Lord to uh, punish her for her idolatry. It seems to be uh, in her words here. She's only just begun to taste and see that how good the Lord is, and then he seems to crush her. You know, why would, you know, and if it was us, we would say, well, you know, we want, we know that she needs trials, but let's give her a break, let's give her some time to cure. Well, the Lord, of course, knows what, he can take care of us, and he does what he wants to do, and he, he knows he'll sustain her through this, because uh, the Lord's ways are not our ways. But again, We've got to look at this and say, you know what, sometimes, right, when we feel like we can't take any more bad things, trials, and the Lord says, no, actually, you can't. And, and as we said before, and in, in your case, you're going to take some more things because I want you to demonstrate my glory and my power in ways that the average person might not. So someone here in this service today, tomorrow you might be hit with something that you never saw coming. The Lord might reduce you to to, to just, uh, you know, take everything away from you. All your health away, all your money away, all your family. It's a preacher, that's, that's kind of depressing. Well, it, that's life. I mean, you, you know, we read these stories sometimes a little unattached. The child died. That's the big thing. So, you know, I don't get too hard on this woman because the child, her only child died. She already lost her husband. 
Oh, it's rough. But the Lord said, evidently she's able to deal with this because the Lord works and sustain her. This is what the Lord does. And it's not all just depressing because when we shine forth as gold in tribulation, we are working ourselves in eternal way to glory, Paul says. But it's all going to be worth it. So it's really good, even though it doesn't feel good. And it's good news, and, and, it, and it's, and it's um, positive. It's a positive message. But you've got to love the Lord more than everything else. See, that's the problem. We, we love ourselves really, but in the flesh we really, when it gets right down the nitty-gritty, we really love ourselves a little bit more than Jesus. And so we struggle when Jesus takes and hurts us, takes away some things. But as our love grows and as we are conformed to his image, remember Jesus says, I do always those things that please the Father. So as we grow in the Lord, we, when, when trials and tribulations come, just like the heads of with Jesus, no, I'm going to, I'm going to please the Father. Lord, help me to please you. Even no matter who all this regards. Because I know that it's the right thing to do and that you will make things right. And it, that's just something we've got to be able to do. And we want to ask God to give us the power to do that. Because on our own, of course, we cannot. <clears throat> well, the first, uh, 20 of the following verses here, <clears throat> we see some Elijah teaches a few things about prayer and faith. There's no indication that God told him that he was raising the child, but Elijah takes that child and he just lays him out on his bed and uh, three times he prays over him. He says, well, is that some sort of ritual? He got three times? No, I don't think so. I just think Elijah was, was going to, he just kept praying. It's importunity. Jesus says, if you would pray, we teach him about prayer. That sometimes it's to the importunity, and importunity is to not give up, keep doing it. I remember the one who kept knocking on the door, I've got friends, I've got to have something to feed them. Get up out of bed, and he kept doing it, so finally the guy got up out of bed. And it's not like the Lord is sitting there in bed and just, you know, well, you just let, leave me alone for a while. He's teaching us that, that sometimes God wants to see how much we want something. And Elijah keeps doing this until the Lord answers him. And there might have been, in some cases, the Lord would have said, no, I'm not going to do that. But but that's not the point. The point is, pray while you have opportunity. The Lord doesn't mind that. To to, to show him how much we care about these things, if they're proper things, and things according to his will. What's wrong with that? We don't, I don't, in other words, and I think I sometimes we go through this. Um, here's a need, here's a problem, and I ask the Lord to, to deal with it. To, I ask the Lord for what is needed and to work or whatever. And okay, I've got it. Right, so now what? Well, you know, so you just go on, kind of go on. And sometimes you know, wait just a bit. No, uh, pray, pray every day. Pray, pray every time you think about it. You just well, I've prayed about that. I don't pray about it anymore. No. Maybe the church needs to get busy about praying about these things. The church needs pray that the church will grow. Pray that God will work it. And I hope that we pray about that all the time. And that's you know you don't ever say, "Well, I prayed that God 
Blessed Church, I'm going to keep praying for it. Because that's what the Lord has told us to do. The righteous knows the property. Uh, you know he's a man weak like us, as James says. But he pleads with God. And when we are weak, God is ready to show himself mighty. I was reading about uh, John Stott, who was a theologian of the last century, really. And uh, I don't think he's alive anymore. But uh, anyway, he uh, he's an Anglican, but, but a pretty solid guy in a lot of ways. Wrote a lot of books and, and so forth. And he was preaching years ago in Sydney, Australia. And toward uh, the end of his visit, he, he basically went hoarse. And his last message, he was going to speak at a, a place where there were a thousand people and so had been gathered. Uh, he he was so hoarse, all he could do was kind of just whisper out the words. There was no inflection, there was no power, no strength. He just basically had it just in a very monotone way to speak. They gave the gospel as best as good. And he said every time he would go back to Australia, someone would come up to him and say, that night is when I received the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord so, you know, that, that's what God does. Sometimes he does things just to, to let everybody know that this is God, it's not man who does this. And so all this can kind of be summed up. If you remember from Deuteronomy 8, 16, God says with you as a wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do the good in the end. Rick, you didn't you didn't catch that. I should have been capitalizing. And I and I should have capitalized that so excuse me for that, but uh but isn't that kind of what I've been saying? The Lord has brought you to a wilderness of trouble and famine and hunger and thirst and problems and enemies that I might humble you to the point that I test you so you could demonstrate who your God is, who your love is, to do good to you in the end. It God never does anything to put us through any trial that, that good won't come from and from the things for you. Sometimes the only thing that will keep us sane in the dark days is to remember these things. This poor widow despaired and had no hope. But the man of God knew what to do. Well, um, just again, just those, those three things, observations that we try to make here about faith. First of all, it has a foundation. Faith is not believing anything we want to, or just believing really, really hard. It's believing the Bible. It's believing God's word. That's what we see here with Elijah. Never do we see faithful people in the Bible living apart from God's revealed will and being described as living by faith. Right? No one's described as um, living by faith if they're not obeying God's word. So he cries fervently. He doesn't chant mindlessly. He, he's got the, he, he's praying about a specific thing. Chanting, vain, mindless repetition, counting deeds, whatever it might be, is not biblical. It's not God honoring prayer. Jesus even knew that when you pray, don't use vain repetition or a lot of words. That's what the pagans did. You can wear down God. No. We 
pray with our minds based on what the Word of God says, based on uh, what's going on around us, what, what we believe to be best, not honoring. And then secondly, faith is not fatalistic. That is, we don't live with the attitude that, well, um, that's what happened. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, so I'm just going to just let it go. I mean, I'm just going to just uh, not, this is God's will, nothing I can do about it. No, Elijah took the child and didn't pray. And if God didn't raise the child, that's okay. Deal with that. But until God, you know, took while there's still opportunity, he prayed and we prayed. And that, that, the Bible seems to indicate over and over again that that's okay. And then thirdly, faith is persevering. You know, In other words, he prayed three times. And God tells us these things. So I think we can take advantage of that. We can see these examples and let us learn how to pray. And again, James uses Elijah as an example of what fervent prayer is. While that's the fervency of James really deals with uh, the famine, here we see another example of it. We're going to see uh, another example when he deals with the 450 prophets of Baal in the next chapter. Uh, he prays fervently. Elijah was a man who prayed for what he needed. And he, he meant it. And the Lord blesses him and tells us to, to go and do likewise. So I hope that those are some things that will be helpful to us. Any questions or comments? May Father, for your love to us this day, we pray for your blessings upon service. May the word of God go forth in power, uh, in truth. May you be pleased with our efforts. May we or be strengthened at your hand this day and give you proper glory, not only with our lips, but by the way we live, by the way we react to things, by, Lord, by all the things that you send our way. May we be faithful servants to you in Jesus' name.